Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we learn about the people that are on the front lines delivering and protecting patient care. I'm Ed Gaudet, the host of our program, and I am pleased today to be joined by Nitin Natarajan, the Deputy Director for CISA, the U.S. Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Well, that's a mouthful. <laughs> I look at you going on a Thursday or Wednesday. Today's Wednesday, isn't it? How are you, sir? How are you? Yeah, good. How are you? I'm glad I'm not the only one who's lost all sense of time. So. Yeah, today was weird, too. Something in the water or something. I don't know, in the air. It was <laughs> it's a lot of weirdness going on. Anyway, let's start off with a little bit about yourself, your current role, and your organization. Thanks for having me here. I'm Nitin Natarajan, Deputy Director, as you mentioned, of CISA, or the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So we are America's uh, cyber defense agency, but also responsible for physical security as well as we look at 16 critical infrastructure sectors uh, and everything from dams and emergency services uh, to the financial sector, food and agriculture, and healthcare and public health, and really working with our partners at HHS and, other, and the private sector to strengthen resilience uh, there. So I've been here about two and a half years now. Uh, some days it feels like five minutes, other days it feels like 25 years and somewhere <laughs> in between. But it's an amazing organization, amazing agency, and really the opportunity to partner with folks. And at least for me, I think kind of bring together a lot of my background, you know, into one location. So it really is, is ideal from that perspective. Small job, right? 16 critical infrastructures. <laughs> I told you we were small but mighty. CISA is a, uh, but a 3,100 person organization, wow. $3 billion. And so we do everything from bombing prevention and active shooter to 16 sectors to cybersecurity and, and through national risk and all of those efforts. And in our free time, I like to remind people, we are actually responsible for the cybersecurity of the entire federal civilian executive branch of government. So that's everybody except for the Defense Department and the intelligence community. So our free time, usually Saturdays and Sundays, uh, that's what we did. <laughs> so we are a small but mighty agency, but it's, it's partnerships that really allow us to be successful. And partnerships in the public and the private sector, because we can't do it with, with us alone. So CISA never sleeps. <laughs> we never sleep. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So how did you get into the, the, the job, in particular cybersecurity? Tell us about your background. Sure. So uh, kind of a unique path, I think, in the government. I spent 13 years as a first responder here in New York. I was a flight medic and a paramedic and a firefighter for years. So I uh, did that, thought I'd do that the rest of my life. I never thought I would leave. Those are amazing jobs and opportunities. Ended up uh, going to hospital administration, doing emergency preparedness, emergency management uh, for healthcare facility, came down to public health, kind of, again, more on that preparedness, resilience range. Got recruited there to the federal government to do that for HHS. They shipped me over to the White House to do critical infrastructure protection there and then critical infrastructure policy. And that led one thing to another, did some time in the private sector, and then had the opportunity to come here and really kind of bring together that experience from being boots on the ground all the way through, you know, policy at the White House. And being able to, to bring CISA's resources to, to help everybody in between. So it's been a, an amazing journey, a unique journey, I think, to some extent. But it, it's funny, somebody once told me, the individual parts of your career make zero sense on their own, but together somehow they make sense. I love that. Yeah, that's really good, interesting insight. So as you look at the next 12, 24 months, what are the top three things you're focused on? Top three priorities? I think the big thing we're looking at is healthcare. I think when you look at CISA in 23, we looked prioritizing four sectors. We looked at election security, K through 12 schools, water and wastewater, and healthcare and public health. 
because we see those entities as, as really kind of target rich and resource poor. Water utilities over 160,000 water utilities in the country. K-12 schools don't have a lot of robust cyber resources. Healthcare, again, similarly, right? I mean, there's, unless things have changed since I was in the hospital, there's not massive profit margins and just lots of opportunity to, to make these types of investments. And when you look at healthcare, it's for us, it's beyond the actual hospital itself, right? It's about medical manufacturing, pharma, labs, blood, biotech, health IT, insurance payers, HMOs, every aspect that's required for that clinician to provide care at the bedside. All those services and employer services that go into keeping that hospital running, all of those entities are becoming more and more dependent on IT and, and OT systems and how do we protect that. So that's really a lot of my focus as we go into the next year, along with two other efforts. One is how do we kind of change the paradigm of cybersecurity? So we're looking at an effort we have underway of um, corporate cyber responsibility. How do we elevate that discussion of cybersecurity from our CISOs and of physical security from our chief security officers to the C-suite, to the CEOs and boards of directors? Because I feel at the end of the day, risk to me is the three-legged stool. We talk a lot about risk identification. We spend a lot of time on risk mitigation. We forget the third leg, which is risk acceptance. We identify, we don't mitigate it, we accept it. And I think that we forget that risk acceptance doesn't necessarily reside with the CISO. That risk acceptance is residing with the CEOs and the boards. And so we need to make sure that they are informed of the risks that they're accepting in their organizations by choosing to invest or not invest. And we'll never make it all risk. We'll never, we'll never have all the budgets we want. We'll never have all the, all the people we want. Those are, those are not things that happen. But I, I think it's one of the things that we want to do is elevate that discussion. The other piece is really how do we change that paradigm directly with industry? A lot of the risk we're assuming is on the end user. And when you buy software, you buy hardware, where it came from. Do you know where the code came from? Do you know how much of it was open source? Was it secure? Where are the chips from? How do we get more of that radical transparency? So working with industry to look at things like software, build materials, hardware, build materials, but really looking at secure by design, secure by default. How do we force industry to start producing products that are secure out of the box, right? Where the default username and password isn't admin and password, right? And that we were able to change that. So really looking at those efforts of, of corporate cyber responsibility, secure by design, getting industry to, to put out products to more secure, not having to pay extra just for security, and then looking at those priority sectors. And I think that's, that's what's going to keep me busy for the next year. That certainly will keep you busy for sure. So when you think about the corporate responsibility and accountability, are you taking a page out of what's happening with the SEC and public companies? So this is predominantly a partnerships agency. So we're having conversations about how we can do this with that voluntary mechanism. Obviously, we're not a regulator in that space. We are keeping, we are watching kind of organizations that are looking at that. But for us, we want to look at this from an educational perspective. How do we ed- elevate that education? And I think often in cybersecurity, I kind of jokingly tell people we speak binary. We have a lot of people who speak zeros and ones, but we need to elevate that conversation, be able to speak in plain English as well as zeros and ones. So how do we start publishing products, getting information out there in a way that allows us to educate CEOs and boards. I had a great opportunity uh, to meet with a bunch of healthcare CEOs last uh, a few weeks ago. And I actually had a healthcare CEO on the stage talking to me about their attack surface. And I, and I joked, I said, if we can even half the room to, to start talking about their attack surface, we're winning. And, and again, we're not looking to, to train CEOs to be threat right. hunters and to be you know, hands on keyboard, but how do we elevate that awareness, the risk that they're looking at both the, the operations but also, frankly, as we look at m and I mean, we look at all the M&A that's happening in the healthcare sector these days. We always talk about the financial viability of companies. We all talk about that aspect. But we're about to bring an organization either onto your network or connect their network to yours. Have we done our due diligence on their cybersecurity? Do we know what vulnerabilities we're inviting by this merger or acquisition? And I don't think that's an aspect that we look at yet. And it's something mm-hmm. that we should you know, start 
having those discussions to look at. Do you see more and more organizations starting to change the profile and makeup of their board by bringing in more cyber experience? We see a combination. We see some people bringing in more cyber experience. We see others just trying to get educated and frankly mm-hmm. asking the right questions. I think we can make a lot of progress by not taking we got this as an answer, right? Be able to have that dialogue and say, okay, let's dive a little bit deeper than, than saying that you have this. And I think we're also seeing an elevation of this, you know, to that corporate enterprise level where we look at things like planning, we look at exercises, we look at people talking about cybersecurity, not as an IT issue that somebody in a server room is dealing with, but as an enterprise issue that can have an impact on brand and reputation and patient safety property in the healthcare space. I think we're seeing that elevation of discussion of cybersecurity truly being an enterprise risk issue and less of just something that our CISO or our CIO will handle for us. Got it. So there's an executive order recently on AI. How are you thinking about that as you think about rolling out your strategy over the next couple of years? And where does that fit? Sure. So this is looking at AI in, in a couple of different ways. One, obviously, internally to us, how do we want to utilize the benefits mm-hmm. of AI uh, to right. help us execute our mission from a cyber defense perspective? We want to talk with critical infrastructure owners and operators to understand what is that role of AI in critical infrastructure. And I know in healthcare, people have started talking about how do we maximize the use of AI and LLMs and be able to really kind of figure out where is that human intervention, right? Where is that line that the machine stops and right. the human has to engage? And those discussions are ongoing, and we want to be part of those discussions with industry. But the other aspect that we're looking at CISA is understanding how our adversaries are potentially using AI against us. So of all the, the great things that we see coming from AI here with, within our sector, as we use our power for good, there are those that use our powers for evil. And for those entities really trying to stay ahead of how AI could, could make it easier, faster for them to conduct attacks or to impact our day-to-day life and making sure that we're able to to stay a a step ahead of that as well. It's a great point. I was on a panel recently with the American Hospital Association, John Rigi, and a couple of hospital CISOs, and we were talking about AI in particular. And one of the things I hadn't even considered was it's not just the acquisition of new products, but it's the implementation and adoption of AI with existing products or from existing products. And that actually poses a bigger risk because those are already contracted. Those are already in use. And the sentiment of the participants was these capabilities are getting added, but we have no visibility into them. They're just appearing. Are you seeing that as well when you talk to other executives or CISOs or or CEOs? We've seen more of a generic conversation, not necessarily AI specific yet, Mm -hmm. but of just better understanding the technology that's being implemented, working with third-party vendors, understanding where their software numbers come from, understanding where the changes are coming. We're seeing, I've, I've heard from companies where, you know, where they thought were, their data was being stored, the country in which they thought their data was being stored was being moved. And sometimes they're notified, sometimes they're not. And obviously those types of changes change your risk calculus. I and mean, it doesn't mean that you don't stay with that, but some organizations may not want to take on that risk. We are seeing this interesting desire amongst the community for more transparency in that space uh, to understand what they're seeing. And I think AI is another example of what are the algorithms? How are they being run? And where are the models being kept? Who's feeding the models? And I think that there's, I think with some of the tools that came out there more publicly, there's a perception that there's one model, right? There's some global, central, you know, singular model, which we know is not the case of how these systems and, and tools work. So getting people to really understand what AI is, how AI works. And, and I think there's a lot of folks that are intimidated by AI because I think it runs the gamut. They think it's either just for kids that are 
I'll say fact-checking papers, I guess, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, 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 right. through this kind of futuristic movie perception of robots taking over the world, right? When really AI is a lot in between and really encouraging folks to go and get educated and understand what AI is, understand what, what LLMs are and how they're fed and how they can work. And they can be used for good. And I think it's something that can be done in a, in a, in a non-person ones kind of in a plain English kind of way. And then try to have those discussions of, of what does this look like? What, what does good practices look like? What do the ethical practices look like in critical infrastructure? And within sectors, that's going to vary drastically for a dam and, and SCADA systems versus healthcare. I think these are not practically discussions for the government to have internally. They're discussions for government and industry and academia and everyone to, to have together to figure out how do we use this for good. Yeah, great, great points. So listeners, there's no Hal out there just yet. Not yet. Not that I <laughs> no. know of anyway. So. Not that we know of. That's good. Because <laughs> that doesn't end well. <laughs> no. <laughs> so how do you how do you think we're doing as an industry post-pandemic? It's been a rough couple of years for a lot of systems. How do you think we're doing overall? I think we're starting to look at the risks that we took practically overnight and better understand what those longer term implications are. I think that I've been in the pandemic planning game for a long time. And I remember when we were having these discussions in 2007, 2008 about pandemics, the, ironically, the, the one big limiting factor we talked about was the ability for everybody to telework immediately. If you think about where we were technologically back then, we're talking about on-prem house, uh, hosting for vast majority of all organizations, right? The cloud was not really a, a thing that folks had invested in. And and all this technology. And our, and our biggest concern, frankly, was is that if we flip that switch uh, during H1N1, H1N1, and people had to go home overnight, the IT infrastructure couldn't take it. We couldn't work. Well, fast forward, you know, 15 something years, we were wrong. And we were wrong because technology advanced. We had great opportunities with cloud computing. I think we flipped that switch because we had. I think now people are starting to come out of it. We're starting to see more of a hybrid work environment. People are better leveraging tools and resources uh, for a hybrid workplace, which I think is great. But we're utilizing a lot of the tools and resources we just kind of literally implemented overnight. And people are starting to have discussions about what is that additional risk that we're taking. If we have people working from home and they're on small office or home office or some whole routers, and what, are they taking the right security precautions there? Do we have the right, as organizations, some organizations are looking at, bring your own device. What does that look like? And, and do we have the right security posture there? A lot of the tools and resources we purchased and, and implemented because we had to, to work. Have we done, have we gone back and, and done those parameters? So I think a lot of organizations we're talking to are starting to do that. I think they're also looking at what does this future look like? Because I think there's a lot of people you talk to that will say that five day a week work, uh, five day a week in the office is not a thing. Others will say remote is great or remote isn't a thing, but it's somewhere in the middle. Do we have the right technology for folks to really be in that split environment? And I think people are starting to figure that out. And, but I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that we're having these thoughts and these discussions with the security first mindset, yes. right? That we're thinking about this with security up front. Because, I mean, we both know that the first thing that gets cut whenever we talk about investment, whether it's about a physical building that's being structured or technological investment is secure, right? It's, we'll get to that or we don't have to worry about that or it's fine. I'm really hoping people are looking at this with a security first lens because I think that's what's really going to uh, make a difference. If you move the security perimeter to the home, Whoa, what does that mean? <laughs> which is which is mind-blowing. All right, great. So over the last couple of years, what are you most personally and professionally proud of? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's our partnerships. I think it's the partnerships. When I look at CISA, I've worked with CISA for 15 years and its predecessor agency as a partner. I've been on the outside from the time I was in state and local government, from the time I was in the private sector, that I was in the interagency. To what I'm most proud of, I think, is, is our, our ability to 
truly be a strong partner to industry, a partner to global tech plumbers, state, local, tribal, territorial governments, and frankly, our federal interagency. I think our relationship today with the federal interagency, with our partners, is the strongest that I've seen it in, in the years I've been here. And I think that's something that we focus on every single day. And it's something that really is critical to our success. And I think that's what I'm most proud of. I think it's building these relationships that are going to survive all of us. And I hear at some point I get to retire. I don't know what that looks like or what that happens. But, <laughs> no, they, you know, they just throw that out there. It doesn't the, actually occur. <laughs> it's not really there. And hoping that it's an opportunity to really have this enduring framework across the nation and frankly, across the globe, our relationships with our international partners are truly amazing. And if you look at even things like our Secure by Design document came out recently, we published the first version in the springtime. We had eight nations on board. We had 16 with a revision just a handful of months later. So I think that aspect, and and it's something we don't talk about often, that's, it's not shiny, it's not technical, it's not, it's not blinking life on it, but it fully is critical to our success. And if you look at a lot of our key efforts, our pre-ransomware notification, for instance, where we're able to actually Make notifications when an adversary is on your network before they lock you up. We've done over 800 this year. We've done over 85 in healthcare alone. That is based upon our partnerships globally. And so it's that element that I think I'm, I'm most proud of uh, in the accomplishments over the last couple of years. Yeah, no, it's great. In fact, I've been involved in the, the public-private partnership with 405D, HHS, yep. and with HSCC. And I've absolutely noticed an evolution of that, that strengthening of relationship with CISA and all the work now that is happening with HHS and with CISA, which has been incredible. And and it's just so timely and so critical for everyone on the front line that is looking for that guidance and looking for more tools and more support. Because as you said earlier, those margins are so thin and they're trying to do more with less these days. And HHS has been a phenomenal partner and, and not just one part of HHS, not just AFR or HE3 or 4-4-D program, but really bring, HHS has done an amazing job of bringing the entire expertise and apparatus that is HHS. I used to work there and it's a behemoth, but it, it has so much resource capabilities and expertise. And to be able to marry that up with CISA and, and the private sector really together, it's, it's all yeah. three of us together. It's not government and the private sector. It's it's three of us together, I think really is key. And uh, it's been amazing to see having, again, been in this space for a long time to see where we are today is absolutely an amazing feeling. Especially in the last three years, it's really... Yeah. Yeah, it's really accelerated. So if you were not doing this job, what are you most passionate about? What would you be doing? You talked about retirement. Probably spending a lot more time outdoors. I, I love camping, hiking, that kind of stuff. And something that this job doesn't let me, I don't think I've camped actually since I took this job. So oh, no. really do more of that type of stuff. Yeah. The, the fun life stuff that gets put by the wayside. Fly fish? Do you fly fish? I don't fly fish. Oh, okay. All right. But more of a, just camping, hiking, yeah. mountain biking. All right. Where have you been? You've been to Zion? You've been to any of the national parks? Or I have. I lived in Europe for a while, so mm-hmm. did a lot of camping up in New York, up in the Adirondacks, yeah. vaults, and, and that area. Around here, we've done the DMV area. Haven't had a chance to to venture out too far, but I'd love to. My, I, my, my wife knows, and whether she's happy about it or not, my life goal is to get that RV. I was just uh, going to say that. I <laughs> have to do two things. The first trip is, is to the infield at Talladega. Oh. And that's going to be uh, that first trip to the RV. And then after that... Nice more camping. It's, I, I want to do the Talladega infield you know, at some point in my life. That's, That's all really my, cool. all my bucket list. Yeah, very good. Very good. So let's see, if you could go back in time, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I, I think be open. I think when I think about where I was in my career back then and, and what I thought I'd, I'd be an EMS and a medic for the rest of my life, it was the best job in the world. People paid me to 
drive around or fly around and, and do things. But I was open. And as, as opportunities came up, I took them. And it really kind of allowed me to transition into amazing things. And so I think being open and not having kind of this mindset of here is my path and this is where I'm going to go and, and being more open to what comes your way. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Great advice. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this question because this is the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. What is the riskiest thing you've ever done? Great question, but I'm not sure how to answer it. Having walked in the burning <laughs> buildings, having flown around a helicopter for a living, some people consider that risky. I'd offer, I, I actually once wore a striped suit with a striped tie and somebody thought I was in the mafia. Uh, that was pretty risky, I think. No, I'd offer, it's saying yes, right? I mean, I think it's saying yes to things that I thought were either high risk or, or high concern or were on the fringes of, what I should do or couldn't do. And I took a detour when I left the White House. I went to the EPA. Mm-hmm. And what's funny, they recruited me to, to help their office land in emergency management. And I, I actually asked them during the interview when they reached out to me, I said, why would I work for you? I have no environmental background whatsoever. I said, I, I recycle. I, I love the environment. I, I know, mm-hmm. but I, I don't have that background. And they actually told me we have plenty of people with that background. We need somebody with your background. And, and there was a real deviation from my entire career. And, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I said, yes. And it was an amazing opportunity. Learned a lot, grew a lot professionally. And I think about a lot of the old steps in my career, the transition from New York to D.C. coming into public health. It was saying yes. And I think that's those were big risks, picking up and moving, you know, going from ground to airing to medevacs. That comes with risk. But saying yes to the opportunity and seeing where it takes you. I love that answer. And that is unique so far on this program. So <laughs> that's excellent. I love that. So music or movies? For this next question. Music. All right. Desert Island top five albums. What would they be? Oh, R.E.M. document. Whoa. R.E.M. fan. I love Uh, that. I have a Michael Stipe. Pink the Wall. Oh, (laughs) killing it. North Brooks, Double Life. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, I am a country music fan. I wear cowboy boots boots to work every day. Oh, you do? Oh. Yeah. So I think. What kind of boots are they? Lucchese's. I got married in them. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) So Garth Brooks, R.E.M., Floyd. I listen to almost everything. I mean, I got to throw out some Beatles, White Album, and it's oh, had yeah. Fifth has to be Tom Petty, Full Fever. Oh, that's a great set you know, list. Just, uh, I, would, I would join you on your island then. And I've had those in combination of, I have those in combination of vinyl, cassette, and CD. I, uh, uh, you still uh, listen to vinyl? Yeah, I love there's very, vinyl. There's very few of us out there. So My, my daughter actually took up vinyl, which is oh. amazing. Some of the same music, some different yeah. music, but just an appreciation for putting that album on. I think to me, it's it's yeah. starting at the beginning and just hearing the story that the artist is laid out. I think people have forgotten that albums are stories, right? And a lot of albums are not just random songs built together, designed to be symbols, but tells a story. And so right. that relationship I, um, with the album too itself and the liner yeah. notes and nothing like it. I have a, a group of friends. We do a vinyl club. And oh, so right. we meet together, We everyone brings an album, we play the full side of one one side of the album. And then we talk about it. It's, it's fantastic. But It's amazing. Yeah, I, I remember conversations uh, back in the 80s about Full Moon Fever and sitting around and just, yeah. what does it mean to you? And it's funny just to hear different people have different interpretations and it impacts people differently. And Absolutely. Uh, it's just amazing. Yeah, and it gets people talking, which we need to do more of these days. Definitely. Any last minute advice to folks maybe starting off pursuing a cyber profession or just coming into the profession? So I'd say that there's a role in cybersecurity for everyone, right? I think there's a perception of people trying to get into cybersecurity that feel, I'm not a super technical person. I, I'm not a hacker. I'm not a coder. I'm not a programmer. I'm, I don't have those skill set. I will say to be successful in the cybersecurity mission, 
takes a broad range of, of individuals and organizations, right? We have those people that need that high technical skill and acumen, but we also have communication specialists. We have people even who budget human capital, right? These things are necessary for our organization to be successful. We have people who do education and training. We have people who manage our facilities and, and help with the execution of that. So there's, there truly is, if folks are interested in cybersecurity and want to help us defend our nation and our critical infrastructure against these adversaries. And again, we're not just talking, you know, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. We're talking cyber terrorists, cyber criminal organizations. If we want to do that, there is a role in this for everyone. And whether you're new in your career coming out of high school and, and let's say you didn't go to college, that's fine. There's a role and a way for you to grow within our organization. If you're later in your career, you want to reskill or upskill, you want to retire and you want to bring your skills to bear, there are opportunities in the public and the private sector and state and local tribal territorial government. So there's a role for everybody in cybersecurity. But I'd also say is that as we look at cybersecurity, I always tell everyone that there's a role for everyone in cybersecurity, but everyone has to play their role. So there's those who want to work with us in cybersecurity, and I think that's great, and we want them here. But there's also a role that each and every person needs to play in the security of themselves and their organizations. And whether you're an auto mechanic, Absolutely. a doctor, an engineer, a scientist, an academic, you will have a role to play to make sure that you're protecting yourself personally and that you're protecting yourself in the workplace. So that workforce should be everyone in the world uh, helping us. Um, but there definitely is an opportunity in the career field for everyone as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well said. Thank you, sir. This is Zed Gaudet from the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. We've been speaking with Nitin Natarajan, the Deputy Director for CISA. And if you are on the front lines protecting patient safety and care, remember to stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information on how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T dot com. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet, and until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps.